We're back here in the courtroom of current events with Peter's proffer. Uh, we're going to do a type of frequently asked question show today. Um, we're sticking to the topic of what somebody can actually go after, what assets they can go after if they sue you, um, or if you're the plaintiff, what you can go after when you sue somebody else. Um, this was asked from a few clients and people that listen to the podcast, so I thought it'd be fun to jump into it today. Uh, it's a pretty interesting topic, so thank you everybody for being with us. If you have any other questions or want to hear any other topics, hit us up on social media at Tragos Law. But for now, let's jump into the pod. Okay, so the topic again is something people ask all the time. Usually it's clients when we first start a case. What can I go after? What can I sue this person for? What can I actually collect? And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the limitations. And we're also going to talk about um, something at the very end, which is whether or not these settlements are actually taxable and they go on your tax returns because people ask us that all the time as well. So we will start with just talking about kind of how we explain it is there are different buckets of money that you can potentially go after for a defendant in a civil lawsuit when you sue them. Because when you sue them civilly, you can't put them in jail. That's uh, reserved for the criminal courts and the criminal process in the state of Florida or the United States government. They put people in jail. But lawyers filing civil lawsuits on behalf of clients, there's really only money damages. So what different buckets of money can you go after? Um, And the first and biggest and best bucket is insurance. Um, but depending on the case, there are all sorts of different types of insurance. So today I've got Pete with me and he's going to start out by telling us kind of the different kinds of insurance that people can have generally. And we'll move into what the other buckets are that are kind of, uh, more protected and more difficult to go after. Insurance is designed to protect you from liability. It's really all insurance is. And the purpose is you pay for insurance to keep you safe and to keep your money safe from any liability you might have. So what do you have? You have car insurance. We all know what that is. It protects you if you are in fact in a car accident or you or you cause damage to somebody else with your car. You've got homeowners insurances. You have general what's called umbrella policies. Umbrella policies are what's called excess coverage. In other words, um, if you have insurance, you can actually purchase insurance to insure you beyond the limits of your insurance. And that's what umbrella policies are. And there are also other general liability policies. For example, uh, professional negligence for us that are attorneys and other professionals. You can have uh, you know business insurance that protects you from anything that could go wrong while you're in the in the course of conducting your business. Or if you're putting on a, an event at your house, you have a party. You can buy an insurance policy for that party if you're going to have slip and slides there, or if you're going to have a trampoline there, or a bounce house, or something like that. Some people buy additional insurances for them personally or for your business that will. Uh, further protect you or insulate you so that if somebody's going to put their hands in your actual personal pockets, they will have to pierce through all of these and exhaust all of these insurance policies. So that's the first bucket that we can really go after as civil attorneys when you're suing somebody. Um, The next thing you can go after is property that somebody owns, whether it's a car, whether it's a watch, whether it's a house. There are particular pieces of property that you can try to go after because that's part of somebody's 
net worth that if they owe you money, then you know it, it seems like that would be a good idea that you could go after some of their valuable assets. We'll talk later about how that's actually protected and it's not so easy to go after somebody's personal assets. Just be, We have people tell us all the time, I know this person has a really nice house or I know they drive this really nice car. I know they have all this money because they have these watches or these shoes or their wife has these purses or their kids go to private school, all this stuff. But we'll talk about why it's actually hard to get your hands on people's property, especially in Florida. Another bucket of money is wages. You actually have the right to go and collect, it's called garnish, uh, somebody's wages as long as you actually have a judgment against them. Now, there's all kinds of nuanced details and protections. We'll talk about those in a minute. But in general, you actually can uh, have an employer take money out of somebody's check and pay you. Yeah, and, and that goes into you, you can sometimes attach to their bank account and get what information what they have in their savings or checking account. Um, also, that goes into IRAs, retirement accounts, um, investment accounts. Those are all potentially things that you can go after because they all are part of somebody's net worth. So just for example, keep in your head throughout the podcast, let's assume either you get hit by somebody and you're trying to sue them or somebody injures you in some sort of way that their insurance does not cover the totality of your injuries. So you're trying to pierce through that and go after them personally. That's really what we're talking about because that's what a lot of this uh, twists on. And we have all the time people come and ask us about a case and say, I can't figure out why a lawyer won't take my case. You know, I had a car accident. It was clear the other guy was at fault. He got a ticket. I, you know, had three surgeries on my arm. I've got all these medical bills. I don't get why somebody wouldn't want that case. You know, the reality is we talk as lawyers about what the elements are of, uh, of a cause of action. Duty, breach, causation, and damages. The part we don't talk about is the most important part, which is collectability. I can do the greatest job in the world for you as an attorney and get you a, a judgment that's not worth a piece of paper it's printed on if I can't collect it. So that's really what we're talking about today. And the, and the answer to those people that can't figure out why Lauren won't take their case is usually the defendant is not collectible and does not have enough insurance. So that means you're going to do all this work and go through all this time working up this case. And at the end of the day, you're not going to get any money because there's nothing that's collectible. There's nothing attachable. There's nothing you can take from them that is going to pay what this case is worth. Um, so the next section we're going to dive into, which is going to be the bulk of the podcast, which is what are the protections and limitations on the assets that we can actually go after. And we'll start with the biggest one in Florida, which is homestead. Florida has the greatest homestead exemption, in my opinion, uh, in the United States. Most of the southern states have some sort of homestead protection stemming back from uh, the Civil War era. But the reality is Florida protects your home and depending on where you are, you know, up to 160 acres of rural property or a half an acre in city limits without consideration to value. So in Florida, you can protect from lien or garnishment your primary residence at any value at all. Now, it doesn't mean somebody can't attach that piece of property. What it means is no one can force you to sell your home in order to pay a judgment. And in some states, that is limited to a certain amount of money. Um, but for instance, somebody hits you with a car, okay? Uh, you lose your leg. You've got a huge case. They only have $50,000 in insurance. You get that $50,000. They have a $10 million house. Well, guess what? You can't attach that house. And if there's nothing else attachable about them, then you've got this 
seemingly rich person with a very big expensive house that you can't collect anything past their insurance on. Now, that doesn't usually happen because if he can afford a $10 million house, he probably has other assets. But realistically speaking, and by the letter of the law in Florida, that house is protected by Homestead. So you actually would not be able to attach that right. house. Meaning you can't force them to sell it. Correct. Even if you have a $10 million sure. verdict and they have a $10 million house, it doesn't matter because that house does not factor in to what you can collect. And interestingly enough, you can't, they could can even sell that $10 million house. And as long as they have the good faith intent to buy another piece of homestead property, and let me define it for a second. Homestead meaning that it's your primary residence. It is a place where you actually are domiciled in Florida. Um, you can... What does domiciled mean? Uh, you're the place where know you... In, we know, but... The place where you intend to return. And as long as... Basically, you, your home. That's what a domicile is. Yeah, that's your domicile. So as long as they have a good faith intent to buy another piece of homestead of property... You may not even be able to attach that money even though you have a judgment for potentially more than the homestead value of that property. Now, if they buy a piece of property with less than your judgment amount, any proceeds from that homestead property that are not used for another homestead property, you actually can attach. They lose their homestead protection. Okay, next we'll talk about how wages are protected. And in order to talk about that, because generally speaking, you can collect or garnish a percentage of people's wages. Now, the the statutes and the laws are written so that you can't make somebody have no money to feed their themselves or to, you know, buy a car or live their life. So that's why you can only uh, garnish a, pretend, a percentage of their wage as opposed to every dollar that they make goes to you because they owe you this money. Um, instead, you get a percentage. But there are some specific rules for people that are head of family or head of household, depending on who you ask, what the verbiage is. And the definition of a head of household is somebody that's unmarried, paid more than half the costs of living, you know, meaning your mortgage, utilities, etc., and had at least one uh, person or child that they were supporting. So the laws are more specific when dealing with a head of household. Head of household uh, garnishments are limited. In other words, if they make less than $500 a week, you can't garnish them at all, period. Forget it. If they make more than $500 a week, but they are a, uh, a recognized head of household, um, you still might not be able to garnish them unless they've actually given you permission to garnish them beyond that. In other words, you have entered a contract where the other side says, if I owe you money, I'll pay you. Yeah. And, you know, really we'll pause here for a second because I can see this from both sides. Usually we see it from the side of we, we represent the plaintiffs, so we really want to try to attach everything we can um, in a case like this because, remember, we are talking about somebody who ran a red light, theoretically, T-boned you, and made you lose your leg. There's not a lot of sympathy for them, and I think that I should be able to garnish their wages because of what they've done to now negatively affect the victim's life in this case. And the victim becomes a creditor. I know when a lot of uh, people hear the term creditor, they think of, you know, either a credit card company or a bank or somebody that you owe money to in a more corporate form, but somebody that is injured and has a judgment or a verdict against another person is a creditor, meaning that other person owes the victim money. The victim has a right to all of the money that the person that injured them has. 
So that's the way that we mostly look at it. And that's why, I mean, it seems kind of harsh that, you know, we're going after people's wages, we're going after people's houses, we're going after people's cars. Well, the reason for that is not because we're blood-sucking lawyers, but it's because we're trying to put our clients back in the position they were before they were wronged by this person. So, I mean, we have to keep that in mind, and that's the way that the statutes are written to protect people and citizens generally, meaning we don't want to put them out on the street just because they had some negligence case and accidentally did something, but we also do want to hold them accountable for their actions, and so they can't just drive negligently and not pay attention to what they're doing, injure somebody, and then be like, oh, well, I don't have a lot of money, so you can't come after anything that I have. Well, there's got to be a balance to where we can repay the creditor or the victim in these cases but also not, you know, put the the uh, debtor or the person that did the wrong out on the street. All right. So the next uh, thing we're going to go into is insurance policies, uh, starting with uh, protected insurance policies, and we'll start with life insurance. Life insurance, for the most part, is not attachable. Now, let me clarify that a little bit. If I have a life insurance policy and you have a judgment against me, you cannot force me to give you my life insurance policy. If I die, the contract terms of the life insurance policy say my life insurance goes to my family, you cannot attach my life insurance or go after my family members to get that money back. Correct. But vice versa, you can go after life insurance money if somebody collects on that. Meaning, if uh, my dad dies and has a life insurance policy that goes to me, and somebody is suing me, you can come get that money from me because it's not my life insurance policy. It just becomes part of my assets or part of my estate if somebody leaves me money from a life insurance policy. So you can't go after the policy holder, but you can go after the beneficiary if that money goes to the person that is the beneficiary on their life insurance policy. And the reality is there's an entire area of law known as asset protection, and a lot of wealthy people invest heavily in life insurance products, not necessarily because they really need the life insurance to protect their families from uh, from something bad happening to them, but they do it in order to shield assets from potential collectability by creditors. Correct. Okay, the next section we'll talk about for a little bit is pension funds and IRAs. Pensions are not collectible. There are a whole lot of nuances in Florida law, and there have been a number of legislative changes over the years, but the reality is this. If you've got what's called an ERISA pension, uh, if you work for some big steel mill or family members work for some you know big company that has an employee-based ERISA is what they're called, uh, pension, those are protected. Um, IRAs, Roths, most of those things are protected. Is it 100% across the board? No. There are some retirement and um, you know, vehicles that are outside of what we would consider a classic pension, like potentially... Um, some people do some weird things in their 401ks and however they invest their, their retirements, which could be collectible. But when we're talking about average people, everyday people, their, four, their, uh, their pensions, their Roth IRAs, can't touch them. Okay, and next is Social Security, food stamps, government benefits, things like that that are not collectible. You know, based on what Peter had said earlier, we're not in the business and the government's not in the the practice of allowing destitute people to become even more destitute simply because they have money judgment against them. And when you're talking about someone that's living on what we call subsistence wages, food stamps, Social Security, Medicaid, um, welfare, you're not going to be able to collect that. Those are bare minimum living standards and you normally can't get a judgment to have 
uh, a garnishment against any of those. And really, all this kind of comes full circle, which we've talked about on other other podcasts, and we will probably talk about it more in the future, is the PIP statute, the personal injury protection, versus the mandatory minimum bodily injury coverage. This is one reason why I, I do think it's pretty heavily in favor of a mandatory minimum bodily injury um, coverage because then, you know, some other states have $25,000 minimum limits. So you can't drive without having $25,000 of insurance, which means it doesn't matter if you're on food stamps or if you're, you know, making minimum wage or don't even have a job, you cannot drive unless you have that insurance. So there is at least something for somebody to collect if you injure them and are at fault in an accident. Because we joke sometimes, and it's really not funny, but we, we joke sometimes that it's almost better to have no job, no house, no insurance, no nothing, because no lawyer is going to want to sue you because you're uncollectible and they're not going to get anything from you. And it really screws the person that's injured as a result of this uncollectible, uninsured person. Um, and they get the benefit as opposed to if you sue somebody that owns a multi-billion dollar company, well, we're going to go the whole distance with them because we know they are quote unquote collectible. And that's kind of the, uh, you know, the bad part about all of this is the way some of the laws are written in our nation today, it benefits you to not even try to be in the middle because if you just have no, no income coming in on your own, well, then you're uncollectible and there's really nothing anybody can come take from you. And we have a lot of people say that to us as defendants. Good luck, get in line, basically, because they have so many people with their hand out, hands out because they owe so many people money that there's no point for them to even care how they negatively affect other people's lives. And, and the reality is, and we've had this happen a number of times, we'll go and actually get a judgment against somebody that we determine is most likely collectible. And what do they do? They turn around and seek bankruptcy protection. So they wind up going to federal court and asking the judge to protect them from their creditors. Of course, we still assert ourselves and make sure that our, our clients claim. Well, let's no. talk about that for a second. So that's another another protection that some people have and that limits what you can collect. So let's talk about bankruptcy. We're not bankruptcy lawyers. We're not going to get into the specifics of you know, what, what you can do to get filed for bankruptcy or what you can't do. We're going to talk about it from a creditor's standpoint of if you have a civil judgment against somebody and they try to file for bankruptcy, what, what can we do then in that case? The basic gist of bankruptcy is to protect the creditor, I'm sorry, the debtor, to protect the debtor from creditors because their assets are less than their debts. And what winds up happening is you go to bankruptcy court and there's a trustee that's appointed and those people are charged with the duty to take everybody that has filed bankruptcies, um, assets, look at them, kind of put them with a meat grinder and figure out, can this person afford to pay back their creditors in a short amount of time? Normally that time is five years. If the trustee determines that there's no way this person can pay these people back, even if we put them on a payment plan, then they discharge them in bankruptcy. That doesn't mean that in every situation, everything goes away, but you have to stand in line with other creditors and the courts make determinations about who's going to get what and how much. And a lot of people try to use this as a tactic to either scare lawyers away or make cases go away just by showing, see, I have nothing, I'm going into bankruptcy. But we've had some cases where they've uh, put a bankruptcy plan together where they pay themselves $3,000 a month when we have a a wage client that um, they owe five hundred dollars to that they don't want to pay that five hundred dollars in wages to so i mean you we have to file the paperwork as plaintiff's attorneys and stay in the case so that we can protect these people from some statutory protections that the bankruptcy court allows them so bankruptcy doesn't insulate you from everything but it can protect from some creditors even if they're victims from something that you did either intentionally or negligently 
Um, so I, I want to circle back real quick to Homestead because we only talked about houses as far as Homestead goes, but other things are also protected under Homestead. Um, Pete, why don't you talk about what yeah. else is protected? The one big thing that is protected in Florida is it's a car. Now, you can't buy a Rolls-Royce that's 350000 bucks and presume that that vehicle is not going to get potentially sold. But if you have a uh, average car, and I think there actually is a value, that value changes year by year as to what's allowable, they're not going to make you sell your only mo- uh, mode of transportation. And dollar amount? There, there's, a, there's a cash dollar amount yeah. that's also protected on Homestead. But the point of it is we don't want to throw people out on the street, okay? So we don't want to – if somebody has a normal house, a normal car, a normal job, and they have a case where they were negligent and they owe somebody money – the statutes and the legislature is right, and they don't want to just totally ruin that person's life and take everything from that person, take their house, take their car, take their last dollar, because then again, they'd be out on the street. So that's really the point of Homestead, but I wanted to make sure we covered that it does cover more than just somebody's house. But what it doesn't cover, which is interesting because we have some cases like this, is you can go look up on the Pinellas County property appraiser or you know Pasco County or wherever you are, and you can see there is a Homestead designation. So if somebody doesn't designate it, meaning fill out the paperwork and prove that it's a homesteaded property, meaning that you live there or somebody in your family that you support lives there full time, then it's not going to be homesteaded. And that is totally collectible. Or if somebody owns five houses in Florida, they can't homestead all five houses. They can only homestead one. Usually it's the most expensive one, but they can only homestead one. So the other four houses are going to be potentially collectible. So, you know, it's just the one house. It's not... It doesn't just let everybody own whatever they want in Florida as long as it's a house and there's somebody that they're supporting living there. It is it is limited to the fact that it is just one house. So there are other pieces of property that may potentially be collectible in a civil suit. And notice he said house. And there are people, for example, that believe that if they buy a big apartment complex and they live in one of the units that they can homestead the whole thing. No. You can only homestead what you actually use for your residence. And you can't make money off your homestead either. I mean, that, that's the point of why somebody living there that you support, I, I believe a lot of the case law says if it's a family member that pays you rent, that is not homesteaded. You can't make, you can't be an income generating property to be homesteaded. It also can't be a corporate, you know, building a high rise that has all these businesses in it, which usually, um, Usually those are owned by LLCs and by businesses and they insulate themselves differently through that. So usually those aren't owned by individual parties. But just for our topic today, if an individual did own a property like that, that would not be able to be homesteaded. And the last section I wanted to just touch on before we finish today is everybody asks us at the end of the case or even before we settle the case is, will this will these settlement funds be taxable? Do I have to put them on my you know, income taxes when I give them to my accountant who does my taxes at the end of the year? How much of this settlement am I actually going to net, et cetera, et cetera? And the answer to that is it really depends on the kind of settlement. Let's start for purpose of conversation in discussing what the settlement is actually made up of. If you are being compensated for injury, those are normally not taxes, meaning there's no Income tax. Let's wait. Let's back up. Let's talk about a normal personal injury case, okay? Okay. So normal personal injury case, we claim past and future medical bills. Are those taxable? Those are not taxable. Okay. We claim past and future pain and suffering. Are those taxable? Those are not taxable. We also claim lost wages in most of our personal injury cases. Are those taxable? Those are taxable. And that makes sense because your wages are taxable. 
and you didn't make X amount of wages this year because of your injury case. Therefore, the insurance company or the other person, the at-fault driver, is reimbursing you for those wages, so you net the same amount on that money as if you would have gotten them from your employer. But let me be clear on something. If you owe the IRS money and you've got levies and garnishments against you, they can come and take your personal injury settlement. If you go into bankruptcy and you're asking for bankruptcy protection, the trustee can take this term, the settlement proceeds against you. Okay, so those are two different issues. The first issue we're talking about is whether or not they are going to be taxable as income. The second part is just, are they attachable or are they collectible? So we're, we're kind of hitting on two topics here, and I guess we didn't really hit that. And the first part is something else that's collectible is settlements that these people are getting from other cases. If they're a plaintiff in some other case and they have a settlement and they're a defendant in your case, well, then you can go after their settlement money because that is not protected by anything. Um, but back to whether or not something is taxable. Another thing we sue for a lot is loss of consortium or loss of relations that you have with a family member. Yeah, those are not taxable normally because, again, it's a non-economic uh, compensation. Okay. And then lastly, for our wage cases, we sue for uh, lost wages, which obviously are settled, or I'm sorry, are taxable, but then we also get liquidated damages with those lost wages. All right. The liquidated damages portion is not taxable. And the reason is it's not actually your wages. It is the penalty damages that the law allows you to collect. And it's something that you get because of the trouble you had to go through. You should have got this these wages way back when you earned them, as opposed to hiring a lawyer, having them fight the case for a year, and then you finally getting paid the wages that you've already worked for in the past. So there's a kind of a method to the madness for all of this. Hopefully we've explained it in a way that you can understand. Um, and we appreciate you guys reaching out to us and letting us know some of the things that you want to hear about. Continue to do that. The easiest way is social media at Tragos Law. If you want to send me an email, it's petertragos at greeklaw.com. And we will be with you next time. Thanks a lot.